Hi, everybody, and welcome to the No Country Podcast. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? What? Is the wind stopped? Oh, my God, it's quiet. I can hear. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been a little bit blowy here. Uh, yesterday was a massive dust storm that changed my whole way of thinking. Uh, and it's been like that for a couple of days. So it's a little bit odd to go back to the mountain quiet when you can hear two morning doves getting it on in your date palm. Uh, or my date palm, as it may be. So, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. Thank you. Good. Excellent. I'm doing good here, too. Mercury Retrograde has started. Uh-oh. It's been a crazy week of shenanigans and nonsense, but... I, you know, I'm at the point right now, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk to you. I want to get this uh, this show on the road. We're going back to the free model, as we said in the last episode, and I feel really good about it. I think that, you know, at this point, including the Patreon-exclusive episodes, we've done over a hundred of these, so I feel like we are spotlight-ready ready to go out into the world and say hello to everybody so i think so too and i've been checking out other podcasts and i i have a lot of confidence in in what we're doing i have a lot of confidence in our listeners we've got some very smart people on board and we're very grateful for their attention and loyalty over time so i i think it's all good i i it just you know, if the world is crazy and uh, some people are stupid, well, look, that's not really our fault. We, our idea was to build a community of really smart people, and I think that we're, we're, we're getting that job done. Right, absolutely. So, you have given me my five words to choose two. How did you go last what? time? Are you ready to report on that? I, I thought you did, you know... Again? Yeah, let me see here. Let me see where I, in my notes, where I put those in. I will say to people that uh, I've been uh, recording some new videos to promote some of the ideas that uh, I put forth in my textbook and which are, you know, in evidence here in the podcast. And I have more and more faith in them that, that little things giving ourselves little challenges, uh, like integrating a couple of words into conversations, uh, little imaginative challenges, and David's done a great job and has a new one coming up in a few moments. Uh, these are ways to really you know, strengthen our minds, enhance our creativity, uh, increase our capability to listen and to engage with other people. So if people follow through well, on these, you know... You, you, it's like exercise of any kind. You can only recommend some good, you know, things, but people have to do them, you know? You know, I'm, uh, unfortunately, I can't find my notes for this. Like I said, it's been a week, so you'll have to forgive me, but I don't have my notes with me, so I can't remember what the words were. Okay, all right. Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll pick up that for next time. Um, yeah, no, I'll tell you next time. <laughs> but you've got five weird words to choose, too, for this time. And we have an imaginative challenge for you that uh, will get you drawing again. 
Uh, I encourage people to, we all draw a little bit. We doodle, we, we scratch, even if we're not good, uh, you know, drafts people. Uh, we have a, a natural inclination to visualize things uh, in some way. Uh, we, we did an earlier one, which I thought was really quite beautiful. If listeners will go back in time, I asked David to imagine tying an imaginary thread around the leg, a leg of an imaginary spider that uh, then the thread was nailed to a, a, a centerpiece and the spider could, could move. And I asked him to draw that spider's movement as a kind of model of, uh, of time. It's, a, it's something that was taught to me about, you kind of get a weird, interesting labyrinth sort of shape. And David did a beautiful job. I think it's a lovely uh, image. Uh, we did post that on the website in the past. Well, we could revisit that. I, I thought it was interesting enough to uh, be suggestive of a possible tattoo. You know, I, I thought it was really mm -hmm. quite a cool image. Um, and there was an earlier uh, assignment where he was an imaginary archaeologist who made a discovery of something that was out of time, uh, something that uh, from the past that uh, projected a vision that didn't seem in accordance with our notions of history. So for this episode's imaginative challenge, I want you to combine those two ideas, David, and you are again an archaeologist and it's your choice of a place in the world. It could be somewhere in China, it could be anywhere in Africa, Australia, uh, the Americas, anywhere. But you come upon specifically a Paleolithic era cave painting, something that is uh, conclusively dated at at least 150,000 years old, okay? And mm -hmm. the cave painting depicts something quite remarkable in terms of vision about time and human history. And it's up to you to draw that, and we hope that you mm -hmm. will post that and make that actual mm -hmm. visual piece of information available to people. But for the purposes of this episode, you will at the end give us a kind of verbal uh, breakdown description so there are a couple of parts to it. We're going to be listening to how your verbal description matches up in any way with the, the visual that you provide. But I want to get you thinking with your hand. We need to think with our hands because I, I grow more and more convinced I'm on to something really important with this idea because thinking with our heads is a very, very peculiar idea. It's a little bit like chasing our own tails or as an early, early metaphor that David and I got into, pig, you know, Piglet and Pooh following the woozle uh, that wasn't there around and around a thicket. Uh, we need to get out of our heads. That's the whole point of minds. It's what a lot of our heroes, people like Terence McKenna talk about breaking out of this idea of a little skull box into the world. And the way we do that is, is really via hands. Hands end up being our first extension of mind. So 
Is there any question you have about your challenge? No, no, I like it. Sounds good. All right, I've got my words, I've got my challenge. What are we going to talk about today? Well, I, I thought this might be a good intro to uh, it, it, that spins off into any number of possible angles. But uh, over the weekend, uh, in this small town that I live in now, which is really a, an official, you know, classic small town, uh, and I'm very, very grateful because I, I have a lot of more exposure to the weather and to nature uh, up on the mountain than I did in the suburbs. But I also have a lot more exposure to people. And this was a really big weekend of a giant antique show, a mineral and gem show, uh, a vintage car show, and lots of lots of people wandering around uh, in a huge wind and dust storm. So it's very dreamlike. Uh, but I got more exposure to people than I have in quite some time. And thinking about it in a really simple-minded sort of way just trying to shut off the brain and take in all this you know amazing stimulus passing by families and arguments and laughter and all this sort of personal emotional social energy the thing that I noticed and I think it's something that people from the if we could have taken someone from a hundred years ago, certainly two hundred years ago, the first thing they would have noticed, I believe, is the sheer number of slogans on t-shirts and caps. This, the world as text, people as, as branded text. I mean, there were things the, the ones that come to my mind over the weekend, and there are hundreds, I was trying to keep track of them. Uh, there was a, an odd looking dude with a t shirt that said, That's what she said. <laughs> there was uh, a woman less than five foot tall, and I think easily 300 pounds, whose t shirt said, Everybody is beautiful. Okay, there we get what's going on there. <laughs> no judgment. We just I'm just reporting. No judgment. And then there was a dude with a T-shirt that, that said, "Demand a trial by combat." That's cool. And I, so there there was all this messaging, you know. And here people, you know, it, this is before any interaction conversationally with people. It's just. My God, there's a lot of messaging. And I was looking yeah. at my t-shirt. I thought, well, I actually didn't have any message on my t-shirt. And I thought, well, maybe I should have a big message that says, you know, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know. So I thought I would throw that out. The world as this constant bombardment of message. We talk about the world that young Gus is going to be adjusting to as he becomes more of a symbol monger, you know, and, and more in, right. in, in, you know, ingrained in the socialized world of interacting with other people. And, you know, are we interacting with other people or are we interacting with these weird abstract fragments of message? And for all our artist friends, and, and writer friends, I think this is a really good question about, well, then what is, 
you know, what about our, our messaging? What about collage? I mean, I'm a huge, you know, collage artist. And then I think, well, wait a minute, the whole world is going so collagist. Uh, is that a viable art form? So anyway, I thought I would throw that open to you at just at the start to see your thoughts about that because I don't think that you live in uh, any less messaged a world than I do. I certainly don't. It. I just feel like it's so interesting to me that people wear these signs on their clothing I have plenty I'm actually wearing a shirt right now that says Twisted Patriot and it's got a picture of the globe with a gun pointed at it and it says no time for time and then there's a bunch of eye, eye, eyeballs on it that says I'll give a speech at the world's funeral and Ooh. I just thought it was so weird I had to have it um, so I wear it out and I don't think people know they, the first thing they see is Twisted Patriot which is in barbed wire and that might be as far as some people go because you if you see a person wearing a shirt that says Twisted Patriot you think a lot about them before you pretty much got them in a box you know you see somebody wearing a Batman shirt or an image of an of an anime girl with huge tits, you've got you, you know what you're dealing with, right? And the same thing for guys who wear NRA shirts and uh, you know band T-shirts, black metal logos that look like uh, you know spilled oil uh, with like a you know a picture of a Grim Reaper on it. You know you get the you get the idea. Or I might but, say you know something as simple as. Uh, a green economy is good for everyone, you know? I mean, there yeah, are lots so, of very yeah. straightforward, uh, look, this, these are my values, and this is who I, you know, it, we, we, we do get that. Um, just for my own information, is Twisted Patriot a thing? Is, is that, I, I, is that a, a, something I, I should know? know? I, I don't. Okay, good. That I'm makes you sure. feel better. <laughs> I mean, I was. I'm assuming it's. Uh, I'm assuming it's it's something. But I saw the T-shirt on Twitter, idea. and I, and I Googled it, and I found the store that it was in, and, you know, it was thirty bucks, and I said, okay, you've got my money, because I I have to have that, you know. Um, it's just such a bizarre, aggressive shirt. It's got a gun and bullets and, you know, uh, chemistry symbols and eyeballs and barbed wire. There's, it's a, there's a lot going on in this shirt. What color is it? Uh, it's, it's gray. It's a charcoal. Um, I'll take a picture of that, too, show people what I, what I mean. But um, so all the all the slogans is re are really interesting to me and it reminds me of the case that happened that you know determined that corporations are now considered people they're considered individuals and i can't remember who the philosopher was who said this but they said you know of course now that corporations are people that means that people have now also become corporations and that kind of one-man branding, the idea of you as an advertising brand, or you, uh, oddly enough, with all these slogans, 
you're either branding yourself as the type of person who'd wear the shirt that you're wearing. I mean, I do this too, so it's not a negative or a positive. Or at times, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're advertising for another company and you're not just advertising for free, you're, you're paying for the privilege to do that. So I think that there's something to that outside of just the general noise of the kind of shirts everybody wears. One of my favorite genres, by the way, of t-shirt wearing people are pictures of Chinese folks who have shirts who, in English that they don't know what, what it means. Yeah, you sent me a couple. Uh, They're hilarious. <laughs> They're hilarious. Which I won't repeat on the show because your mother listens to this, but you know, you can imagine what's on these t-shirts. And... Um, so yeah, those are those are some of my first thoughts. Is the the person as advertising billboard for corporations, uh, but more interestingly, even if they're not, if it's you know some of these shirts that you're talking about that, uh, like that's what she said. Uh, that that's interesting because it's supposed to denote a person who or connote a person who is of a certain type, right? Like a joker, uh, a guy who likes to have fun, you know, like he's gonna he's gonna mess around. He like probably likes to have a good time, he likes to party. Um, but I, I think in the spirit of the shirt that I'm wearing right now, I think shirts should just get completely obtuse with their messaging. Like, I think that people should walk outside and if they were to happen to read the shirts of strangers, I want them to feel like they're having a stroke. Like, what am, what am I looking at? Have I stepped into the twilight zone? That's a good attitude. Do you know what the origin of the word slogan is? It's one of those words that we actually do have a really good idea about where it comes from. No, where does slogan... Is it, does it have to do with, with, with banners, like knights? That's not like that, entirely... Bad instinct at all. That's sort of on track. It comes from a Scottish Highlands war cry. Oh, okay. Men in skirts with battle axes. Hmm. You know, think Mel Gibson in <laughs> Braveheart. That's what a slogan started off as. It's like, so it is, it's a battle cry. And, uh, Oh wow! You know, interesting. That really puts the huh. whole thing onto a, a a very interesting platform as a beginning point. I mean, we're we're very certain about that word's origins. Uh, you know, I was looking up. It, I think this is important. I was thinking about the wonderful word sleazy, which is just so fun mm-hmm. to say. We, we're not actually sure. The nickname for my dog, by the way, that's what I call my really? dog. Really? Sleazy or the, or the sleaze. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay, so clue the sleaze. All right, well, sleazy is just such a rich, wonderful... Well, we're not really certain of where, where that word came from. We're, we're, it's, un, we're, it's unknown. We think it dates back to at least as far as the 17th century, but we're not sure uh, really where it derives from. So when we hear a slogan... Uh, just think of insanely battle crazed men in in tartan skirts. That's what you need to have as your image because <laughs> that is the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's man. That really is interesting. It's you know reading uh, Lakoff and metaphors to live by. 
if anybody takes anything out of this show, and I know that this show has done this for me, sometimes I will be driving with my son to go get some lunch or to pick his mother up from work, and I'll be thinking to myself, and then I'll, I'll say, huh, what? that's an interesting word that I just thought of. And then I'll think, I wonder where that word comes from. I don't post on Twitter about etymologies anymore because for whatever reason, it completely drives people nuts. I feel like it's an HP Lovecraft arcane knowledge that people don't know what to do with. Once you tell them the etymology of certain words or you know what they used to mean, they're, they immediately jump in. They're like, no, 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 the word means this. But for me, it's been really, uh, it's opened up this whole world of, you know, what do we mean when we say these things? Because I think that, you know, words have a kind of blood history, a blood memory, the way that we do, right? Like, you and I, I think, have deeply ingrained instincts and memories passed down to us from our great-great-grandparents and so on and so forth. I think words have the same thing. Because slogan does sound like an aggressive word, now that I think about it. Uh, it's, it sounds like when you said it's something that would be shouted by Scottish Highlanders, that makes total sense. Um, so, damn it, where, where was I going with that? It's been a long week. Uh, <laughs> and Mercury retrograde. <laughs> just thinking about right it now. And Mercury retrograde. Ugh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll be. I'm getting on it here. I'm working on my drawing while I'm talking, and I got tripped up. Um, but can I help? Hmm. He, yeah. Help okay. Me. Well, yeah. He, here's a link forward. I think that. Uh, what I see going on with all of this messaging is that, I mean, nothing appears simultaneously more passive than just some words on a t-shirt or a cap or a bumper sticker or, you know, wherever we find these things. Uh, the fact that they're all over is, is uh, a little bit of another sort of issue. But they appear very passive communications. But if we do think about the slogan as beginning with a battle cry, then what we're really saying is they're, they're actually uh, passive-aggressive and that we're surrounded by passive aggression and rhetoric. And that has an, you know, the impact on us is one, of engaging with that and and we start to you know i mean if someone like puts their hands up i mean your first thing is like well you put your hands up you know it's like you know you mirror the world you know you think okay well it's it's coming at me you know i gotta i gotta defend myself and we're all about you know in on the show in terms of psychic defense and tools that will help people deal with all of uh, the craziness and dissonance of this time and then we start to think, well, we're going to have our own sort of, you know, uh, slogans. And I, what I think, what I love about the no country thing is like, well, it just says, you know, I think we need our own t-shirts. And people go, well, what does that mean, no country? You know, look, they have to think a little bit. You know, they have to decode. They have to interpret. And that's what a lot of the messaging uh, doesn't ask us to do enough of, I think. It's like... Oh, okay. That's just a statement of 
you know, so-called personal identity. And then you think, oh, well, that's sort of tragic. I mean, not to dwell <laughs> on the, the, the uh, very obese woman. I, I don't want to do that because the moment you mention that, people start to, you know, jump on your case and, and think, well, you're trashing fat people. Uh, I don't want to do that. But I want to say that I think it's, it, it's something that would be hard not to notice when someone three times the normal weight uh, of, of a healthy person, their height, there is that, there's also just proportionality, is wearing a shirt that says everybody is beautiful. You know, I, I don't think that's the case, and I don't know why we're aspiring. I, don't, I certainly don't aspire to, you know, having people go, well, he's really beautiful, you know? I, I'm not trying to win that contest. Uh, so there's something about the nature of the messaging today that I think is, uh, well, it's not just, it's not simple-minded, you know? Something simple-minded would be quite lovely in a way. <laughs> it might just be a blank T-shirt of a cool color, you know? And it would look good on someone. Um, I think the problem is that is a weird passive aggressive need to be constantly communicating a message that people don't feel they can actually articulate with language themselves. Mm-hmm. There, I've been thinking. It's funny that you mentioned that because I've been thinking a lot about the value of silence even in interpersonal communications with people, say it's a gas station clerk or somebody even that I know, allowing silences to linger in the air is very powerful. And the this idea that people can, even when they're shutting up, they, they can never really shut up is, I think, really symptomatic of our time and also really points to... Um, have you ever seen slogans, for example, that that say something to the effect of, you know, so that everyone can have a voice? Twitter does this, right? Or Facebook, you know? Everybody has something that's worth saying. And it ties into a lot of the identity-centric things that we talk about on this show and how that is beginning to, or not beginning to, but has over the past several years morphed into a partial tool for, uh, you know, control over people, right? Because as soon as you are standing in one place, you become a target. Uh, but, you know, it's it's interesting to me that you said, what about a shirt that just looks good that, some, <laughs> that somebody could just wear? Uh, because that seems to be... Uh, like it wouldn't have utility you see what i mean yes. there like it's it, it it's it's like people would be confused by that they're like wait so i would just wear something because it looks good but you know to what end it's like buying an empty so the, billboard I, space you think oh well why would right, you do that right. you know yeah like shouldn't i have like a nike swoosh here or or something like um so i think that it also yeah uh, identity and um and sort of putting these messages out, these slogans out, is in fact, it's it's all part of the same piece. You're never allowed to shut up. You have to constantly be declaring uh, what or who you are. 
what brands you're affiliated with, what brands you don't like. Uh, you go from that to Twitter where you never shut up about a movie that you saw that you liked or didn't like. And, you know, something that I've noticed because there's so much going on in the news all the time, and one of the recent things that came up was the uh, leaked documents about Roe v. Wade that came out. And I, you know, I was talking about this with a close acquaintance, and I didn't pick my words carefully, but what I, I said was essentially like, oh, well, I, don't, I don't really care about that, right? Like, it's just, it's not something that's really on my mind. Well, they didn't, they didn't like that very much. And to be fair, I mean, it's, it seems like it could be a callous thing to say. But the point that I was trying to make when I said that was just that overall, I have things that I believe about what's right and what's wrong, what should be enshrined in law and what shouldn't. Uh, I'm not saying anything about this particular issue um, because I'm beginning to think that there is actual magical significance in being able to remain silent on certain things and to maintain an oscillation between you know holding strong principled stances on things but also not feeling the need to declare those things at every turn right there's something in the declaring that you're getting at with the slogans on t-shirts uh, and the fact that the slogan is a war cry, like whose who's, uh, war are you being enlisted in? Uh, why is it that people get mad at each other for maintaining silence? Like, what, Why is one of the main things that's said on Twitter so often, uh, why is nobody talking about this? Or silence is violence. Or, you know, if you're, if you're not paying attention to this, then you're just a, you know, a piece of shit and you shouldn't be able to comment on anything. There's a real aggression against sitting anything out. Well, I think that uh, the key, and uh, this is an example of uh, audio memory. David has used the word declare in, in three different moments over the last few minutes. And I think it's an important word just to touch base on because it's, again, something we know very a great deal about it comes from you know very straightforwardly from the latin and it means to make clear you know it it it, it seems very simple well i would suggest that the need to make something clear implies or assumes that something isn't clear which is a kind of amazing assumption really uh to whom is 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 this not clear uh I don't think that's most of the time when we hear declarations and we read declarative sentences and someone declares a position. Uh, in fact, I don't think there is anything that wasn't clear. I think we, we, we feel much more like uh, the Scottish battle cry situation. We, we, we weren't unclear about the situation before at all. Um, so it isn't making something clear in an expository, explanatory, helpful sense. It's not giving a model, an analogy, or providing a teaching aid or further insight into anything whatsoever. It's, it's hammering a nail with a bigger hammer. You know, that's mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. declaring is about. Or it's getting a megaphone out. That's uh, 
what the, the symbol, the visual symbol in, in certain countries around the world are, you know, with what that is, that's sort of the emoji for declaring something. It's, it's yelling it louder, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So far from being able to deal with stillness, silence, letting things settle, uh, thinking about things, allowing maybe some other points of view to uh, enter in, Anything declarative, I would suggest, is far more along the lines of the, the battle cry, you know? And how many battle cries can you issue uh, in a short period of time? I mean, I think that uh, that's a weird, weird position. And it's also a very obviously weird metaphorical position when you never really do go into battle, you know? <laughs> Right, you right. Know. When the battle is all fought behind your keyboard, it also makes me think about before the era of shirts with slogans on them. Um, fashion has always communicated something about the wearer's identity. If you're wearing uh, a greasy, a greasy T-shirt, you might be a mechanic. If you have a you know a three-piece suit on, you're probably wealthy. All the way going back to different colors and crests and and things of that nature all throughout time. So fashion has always meant something. However, I'm thinking about back to a time when there was a style and a manner of dressing that might be different amongst different classes, but that within those classes themselves. The clothes didn't say anything particularly unique about you. Nobody was walking around with like a suit on that you know also had a, a Superman pin or something, which is still, that's a little corporate signifier that is letting the observer know that you're really into comic books. You're a huge nerd, basically. And I wonder if there isn't something to the idea that, uh, you know, that wearing clothing that might be of a particular fashion but doesn't have anything so concrete as to signify a brand or an allegiance to some kind of corporate entity isn't a better way for a person's uh, quote-unquote individuality to come out. Well, we've talked a lot about the, the problem of individuality and how that's been sold in as the... It really is the cornerstone of, of modern commercialism and the whole consumerist sort of ethic. And it's, it's at it's strange odds with collective identity and class. I mean, in the past, the collective identity had a, a great deal to do with class and simple cleanliness of clothing and quality of clothing was a statement. You know, that was statement enough and there was a, there was an ability to, to really read uh, class and occupation at a glance. I mean, one of the things that uh, I enjoy about the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes canon, and it ties in with many other writers. Dickens was another great sort of writer at, at this and so was Mark Twain of seeing class instantly in people, seeing occupation. You know, a lot of what Holmes' amazing deductive capabilities is, oh, uh, well, you know, that person is X. 
you know, because I could see that. It's very hard to see, you know, with middle management people in software development, you know, they don't have any, all you can say is, well, that person is a software developer because, you know, and that's all you know. They could be working in AI, they could be working in gaming, they, you know, you don't know. Um, so we, we've had a tremendous homogenization of what people really are. I mean, I was so, I mean, the guy who came to look at my roof, and I'm so glad I had him come uh, because of the heavy windstorms. I just wanted to sign off, you know, is everything okay? And uh, he's six foot four, heavily bearded, uh, local. He started work for his dad when he was 16. He's in his mid 30s now. And a really, you know, interesting guy. But my God, he, he was dressed like a roofer. You know, he's, he's covered in that kind of, of grime and dirt. He, you know, he, he's someone who gets up on ladders and, and, and looks at seals and uh, peers mm-hmm. down chimneys and repairs roofing tiles and, you know, does that kind of work. And you could see that. You could see that in him. And, and there was no question about it. Anybody would have gone, well, that guy's obviously not a software developer, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Or he's taking a break from that <laughs> the, today anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's this whole sense of a non-physicality of living a non-immediacy of occupation that that shows on our hands. And, uh, I mean, I was at the hardware store the other day, and uh, you know, the woman looked at my hands, and she goes, oh, you've been doing some painting, you know? And I right. thought, yeah, yeah, I have. And I had actually right. cleaned up, you know, quite a bit. Uh, I'd done some scrubbing, but I still had, you know, under my nails and down uh, just kind of on the web of my thumb, you know? And uh, I had, you know, I was, I was paying at the counters and, and she was, you know, she was observant. She was looking at, and yeah, in fact, I had been painting. Exactly right. And uh, I was going to go back and do some more painting. Um, but that wasn't what my purchases were about in the moment. I was doing something else. So it wasn't a good inference based on observation. But think how much more interesting that is as a mental connection with someone rather than looking at somebody's t-shirt and Mm, I was do you find this that uh, like with I mean maybe this is just sort of some male embarrassment but if I I don't know I don't like to look at women's t-shirt slogans too closely you know oh 100% especially if they have big yeah Cause then, then they just think that you're looking at their boobs, and I have. It's it's funny that you bring it up. I mean, you know, obviously, if I'm out in public with my wife, I, I keep my eyes locked forward so as to keep myself out of the doghouse. But um, <laughs> even even outside of that, uh, there are times where if I'm in a bad mood, oh, how much of this should I even say? I'll just say it. It's fine. Uh, there are some times where I feel, especially if I don't like the look of cleavage, I feel a little resentful to that that boobs can be that prominently displayed. You know, I used to have a friend, and this is who I always think of. She's a lovely person, but she's you know also overweight. Really bagging on overweight women here, but it's fine. Uh, <laughs> she used to always wear these extremely low cut tops, and you know push her 
her ample bosom up and she would always comment she'd be like everybody's looking at my boobs and I would say, well, there's not, I mean, there's a reason. If they're looking at, <laughs> there's, it's because they're just, it's kind of like, you know, if I, if, you know, if I was on the streets of Edmond, Oklahoma, you know, and an elephant was walking down the street, I'd probably stare at that too because it's huge and it's in my field of vision and it's unusual. Uh, and that's kind of what we're dealing with with this, right? Um, so how in the hell did we get talking about this? Right? Well, it's about messaging. But, it's about it's about what it's about mess. Yeah, it's about messaging. And and I, yeah, thank you very much because I didn't want to lose that thread. Uh, I I really love this idea actually about the paint under your fingernails and this kind of Sherlock Holmes ability uh, to actually read the context clues of what's going on with what people are wearing. Um, I had. Uh, Gus had decided to throw his food at me the other day, and he's one. I don't care. We had to run some errands, and I was not going to change into a new pair of jeans just because, you know, I have this huge splotch of prunes on my leg, right? Um, So we go out, and I'm, you know, I'm self-conscious of it because the splotch is there, but I wonder how many people, like this woman you talked to, even noticed like, nobody's looking at my pants, and thank goodness, because that really would make me feel self-conscious. But at the same time, uh, what does a t-shirt with a slogan on it tell you about the person other than they're a person who really likes wearing t-shirts with slogans? It's not really a clue, is it, to, to who they really are. It could be a thing of the week. They could have bought, they could go, they could have gone to a thrift store Right? They could be wearing a t-shirt ironically. Maybe they don't really like the Grateful Dead. Maybe they just think it's funny to wear a Grateful Dead t-shirt. Uh, it, there's a lot of traps that you can fall into with how people present themselves. But something like paint under fingernails or prunes splattered on jeans don't lie. Those, that's where the actual stories are. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, this is a, a funny and true story. Uh, which goes back a couple of weeks. Uh, I have a sort of a, a hot pink raging into uh, molten lava orange colored t-shirt, which is for Tabasco sauce. And it, it just, it jumps out at you. And, and I actually, I, I do, I have a bottle of Tabasco, like many people in my uh, fridge right now. You know, I, I like the product. But I was coming out of the 7-Eleven and uh, this family rocked up and uh, the mother is, I don't know, maybe, you know, in her mid-30s, very attractive uh, Latina gal and she had on the same shirt and we both looked at each other and I said to her, I, I think we'll have to get married. And she went with that totally, put her arm in mine and pretended to walk off from her family. It was just a beautiful moment of a complete stranger engaging with imaginative play in a very physical sort of way. I mean, imagine that just, you know, she really, you know, took took my arm, you know, and got right into the game. And we took about five or six steps, you know, 
And I mean, no one was confused. I mean, her husband didn't freak out. Mm-hmm. The kids didn't go, where's mom going? You know, nobody, everybody went with it because it was right. an imaginative play space that somehow got sacredly created spontaneously uh, and on nothing more of a level than a t-shirt. But there was no message there. There was just the branding of the Tabasco, you know, thing. But I think there are some moments where, you know, all of this social messaging, uh, and this is, you know, there's nothing more than social media than people walking around with t-shirts and slogans and, you know, bumper stickers and all this branding physically. You know, that's the real social medium, if there is one, which is so often antisocial, as we've been saying. But it often doesn't really lead to anything. You know, you, we're, we, we don't want to look at the woman's T-shirt because she's got big boobs. So we don't engage with the, the message. You know, it might be something mm-hmm. like, you know, something, an important message, like save the whales or something. You know? I don't know if I could look yeah. at a woman with really big boobs with a save the whales T-shirt and not smile. Um, but I think that we get this strange social distancing from all of this messaging rather than connection. And it was really just wonderfully playful to to have a moment with this stranger. Um, I mean, I think she felt confident because she had her family there and it was all fine. But you could tell that she was the kind of person generally who is open to interaction, you know? She's, she's yeah. social and friendly in a real <laughs> active sense all the time, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool because it led to connection. I wonder, you know, since the shirt that you two were wearing had to do with Tabasco sauce, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about cultural signifiers that actually bond people together. Nobody who's both wearing, you know, say a Trump shirt, like they're not going to become best friends because they're both wearing that shirt. But isn't that sort of what they're hoping for? Isn't the story of your Tabasco t-shirt in this woman kind of what slogan shirt wearers are thinking when they put that on and go out? I know I do. I have some shirts that are for bands, for example. And I always wonder, you know, every once in a while, I run into somebody who says, hey, cool t-shirt. And we have a little moment because we both like this same thing so perhaps the broader the cultural signifier because everybody loves tabasco that i know uh the better that kind of shirt actually is just think if you had not been wearing it you would have been able to see that missed opportunity just walk right by. yeah and then what do you say what do you say do you stop her and say i have that shirt too no that's weird no, no, like, what do you even say to that? Okay, oh, cool, man, nice, glad to hear it. Yeah, that's right, that's right. It's uh, it would have been that missed opportunity, you know. But to even think of a missed opportunity to connect <coughs> with someone else is its own interesting frame to put on things. Because most of the time, and I think that you know, I always go back to. Uh, you know, the first time I was ever in New York City, some <clears throat> a resident, you know, a local, felt the need to tell me, you know, don't make eye contact with anyone on the subway. And I thought, really? <laughs> they like, I'm from Oakland. I'm not going to listen to that nonsense. 
you know, I'll, I'll make eye contact with whoever I want and, 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 you know, deal with the consequences. But it's just, we're, we're so afraid uh, of, of, you know, and then that makes all this messaging all the stranger because if people are afraid of looking at each other, looking each other in the eye, looking at each other, you know, at the boob line or whatever, I mean, uh, what what do we have? You know, it that really makes then the messaging and the battle cry aspect of slogans uh, all the stranger. You know, mm-hmm. it just it makes mm-hmm. it look uh, well. Well, here's another sort of angle. I'll, I'll just see if this resonates with you and see if you can maybe, because you're good at connecting dots. Um, mm-hmm. I was uh, thinking about these videos that I've been making uh, promoting the textbook, and one of them deals with my recommendation of doing time blindfolded, blindfold work. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty pleased with how those turn out, but we, we've got a lot of post-production work to do still. But I, what I didn't mention so much in the textbook is um, my uh, just hilarious attempts to learn American Sign Language and some of the woeful and ridiculous results that emerged from that, which I, I encourage people to get with Sign Language. I think it's a really cool, fun thing. But... The woman who was my teacher, and this was a professional thing, and I really went out to, to learn. She's one of the greatest lip readers in the world as well. Mm. So, uh, and she's been profoundly well. Her category is utterly deaf. There's profoundly deaf, and there's utterly deaf since birth. Mm-hmm. And her family, uh, she has an older brother, a younger sister, and her parents are both still alive, and they all have perfect hearing so this was an anomaly and she did get great training at one of the the very famous uh, surviving schools uh, for deaf people so she's had all of the professional input in terms of orientation and the disciplines you need Uh, and she makes her living as a professional uh, sign uh, translator Uh, but her lip reading skills she owes entirely, she said, to her family and her father, who, uh, you know, works with concrete and drywall. He didn't bring any special education background to that. And she said that her family embraced her deafness from a very, very young age, and that her older brother, who is, uh, has perfect hearing, is a better lip reader than she is. And that the family made uh, her auditory deficit fun and made it kind of the norm and the culture within the family. And that they're all just Mm. wizards at this other level of communication. And she said to be with people meet her brother and uh, his knowledge of what is going on around him at any given point because of this amazing lip reading facility is uh, it's beyond Sherlock Holmes you know it's it's beyond stage magic it's it's eerie you know that's her word for it it's just eerie and that to me is so exciting about tuning into messaging and communication on that level you know as opposed to this you know war cry t-shirt level of like 
that you don't want to look at. You know? mm-hmm. That is, uh, well, first of all, that's really fascinating. And I, I feel like now that I know that there are lip readers that are that good in the world, I'm going to be a little bit more careful with what I say in public. Because you never that know. Was my, that, that's my listen. reaction. I haven't seen her personally mm-hmm. in some time, a few years now. But that's exactly, I think, uh, you know, you start to think, well, wait a minute, you know, does someone have my password? Well, forget that level. They're actually checking out what you're saying on the phone at 30 feet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but this is all fascinating to me because it really, uh, I'm taking from it a, a generalized marching order in a way to get a bit more observant a bit more Sherlock Holmes with everything because as you're talking about this woman who's a world-class lip reader uh, or the paint under the finger all of it to to me you know where is that for me like I don't have that I take a glance at somebody at the homeless guy who's on the corner there's this albino dude who was swinging a lead pipe earlier today and you look at him and you're like, oh, crazy guy swinging a lead pipe. But as I think about it, I can't recall from memory what color his shirt was. I think he had olive green pants on, but I can't recall the shirt. But powers of observation, the ability to look a little bit deeper than what people present to you is a great survival skill. And it's one that is being uh, rapidly retarded in this day and age, right? I mean, people who are on uh, the internet too much, I mean, they have kind of the opposite of that to the point where autistic has become sort of synonymous with this kind of incel internet user, people who can't read social cues or physical cues or anything like that at all, you know? Like, that's just completely out the window for them. So I want to move into... Well, I'll tell you about my drawing, and then I want to move into tools and tips, but I wonder if that's not already a semi-helpful tool. I just, hope just it is. I, I hope it is. I mean, I think, you know, the technique generally is called cold reading in a stage magic sense of just being super alert and processing information in a kind of detailed way. Uh, and, and seeing how much you can learn about the world without people declaring, you know, without people having to declare, well, you know, I'm a real estate agent, you know, you should be able to see that often, you know, um, be, be alert, you know, there, that, that's one of the greatest simple tools there can possibly be. But tell us about your drawing. What did you find? And what, let, let's start off, I, I think we, we, we really, you know, the name of this podcast is No Country. And one of our messages, and this is a great tool to people, for people, it's, it's not just a question of who you are, but it's a question of where you are. Because where and when are the same thing. That We know that space and time are, you know, deeply entwined. That was one of the great insights of the 20th century. Rather than focus on who am I and like what sort of you know brand I've got on my T-shirt, where are you? You know. So take us to where you found the uh, visual information 
and then tell us what you discover. Okay, so where I found them, we will say that I was very close to Blythe, California. Okay. Yeah, close to some of those glyphs, those geo Those intaglios, yes, I've written about them. The intaglios, yeah. yes. Yeah, we'll say that I was close to that. So at the top of this image, there is a figure with a square head and a long neck that leads down to two, maybe their arms, extending to either side of the page. Then uh, they kind of abruptly make an L shape facing down. There's some kind of eye figure in the center and it's got legs. And this figure seems to be overseeing everything that's underneath it. Underneath it, under each arm is a a shape that resembles maybe a guitar pick or perhaps a gray alien's head. There are some squiggly lines between that. Then a design that perhaps looks like a cityscape, but much more primitive than that. Maybe a bunch of huts next to each other. And then beneath that, there's a strange triangular drawing uh, diamonds in a triangle pattern with a swirl around it and around those are humanoid fig figures also with extremely large arms reaching towards the center of the spiral wow. that's what I've got it's a pretty cool little drawing I think that was a beautiful description unto itself and uh, I think that people listening will have their own uh, mental theater ideas of that, but we look forward to looking at the drawing uh, in, in visual fact. But I think that what people may be aware of just in the listening is that we've heard something important about the entire human story and the nature of language, the peculiar interaction between the visual, the imaginative, as in not quite visualized, but visually referenced, and then the auditory. There's something very powerful in that, what we, just those last two minutes, that is essential to understanding the arc of human story across at least, a, you know, a couple hundred thousand years. I think that that's, that's how we get into a larger planetary and Paleolithic framework because uh, that's probably about as far back in time as we can really see. I mean some of our great intellectual heroes like Wilhelm Reich and uh, others, uh, John Lilly talk about you know being able to get to the amoeba level you know of evolutionary development through meditation, through drugs, through experience of deep biological process but uh, that was a beautiful uh, rendition in, in time for you know, mature age listeners, people who are uh, wearied and, and overwhelmed with messaging, you know, to, to come back to the nature of message, where that started, you know, where that, that whole idea began. 
you know. So I think that was really cool. I look forward to seeing that. I don't. I think that's too cool an image for any T-shirt. Yeah. I well, thank you. I uh, I agree. Maybe I should design T-shirts, make a little money on Redbubble or Etsy or something like that. But um, do you have a tool and a tip? For yes, I do. Yes, I do. The tool uh, is in this line of, of, of a super alertness, which is really not a superpower at all. Uh, it's, it's, it is just basically being uh, attuned and, and looking around for information that isn't declared or hammered into us, uh, trying to, to seek out little clues of, of what's, what, what's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think that we, we tend to uh, miss and dismiss, that's an interesting little play, isn't it? Miss and dismiss. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to think about how those sorts of phrases work. When we see people Think about that. When we see people, we are seeing into routines and patterns of daily life, energy flow. And we can often then not see them because, well, this is what happened. You know, the postman, you know, comes at, you know, 2 p.m., you know. I recognize that. You know, the sound of the truck, well, you know, because it's 155. Oh, he's a little bit early. We start to routinize ourselves out of awareness rather than using routine and patterns of energy and flow in a positive sort of way. So one of the tools that I recommend for people is to this week, starting with the listening of this episode, establish one small new routine. Do it very, very explicitly. Something that you do that is different to what you did a day ago. One thing that is different, one anchor point. It can be as simple as if you have a glass of water by the bed, rather than, you know, maybe move that to a different place on the nightstand. Mm -hmm. One Mm -hmm. little change like that, as stupid as that sounds, it's, it's amazingly powerful. David and I both recently moved house, and we've talked about the psychology of moving into a different place and developing new habits and patterns and movement through a place. You know, I'm starting to get, you know, more confident of moving in the dark in my house. And blindfolded work, as I say, is very important to me. And it took me, a little, you know, a few moments of, you know, thinking like, oh, I've got to really get my visual memory happening here. Otherwise, I'm going to kill myself. You know, I was used to my old place. And right. it's amazing how we can retrain our minds, how we adjust mm-hmm. to new patterns. And if we are the originators of the patterns, you know, it's one thing to have routines enforced on us. Oh, shit, my alarm's going off. i got to get to work. You know, that's hard. That's hard. I mean, no one sleeps well if they're going to catch a plane at 5 in the morning, you know? 
it's just it's very difficult to organize yourself for that I start to think about oh well I might as well just stay up all night you know um, but little changes just move some things around but really do a little bit more try to reorient yourself in time and space and appreciate that you are not just some sort of uh, mind which is really a blob of sponge in a box of bone you know in a robot body break with that entirely and go no look I'm fully in my body and a lot of the things I love are other bodies and I do live in a house and I'm really grateful for having a roof over my head so I'm going to groove with that but I'm going to take some ownership of, of how I manage that space that time because space is always time so little tiny things can change yeah. and we we build up a whole new world around that none of us are going to get 10 more IQ points you know doing anything none of us are going to lose 10 pounds in a week in you know in any healthy way none of us are going to make enormous changes with our bad behaviors, the things that are psychologically damaging to us and maybe to other people, but we certainly can make little, little changes. I, yeah, I like that a lot. It reminds me of something I once heard uh, Rudolf Steiner recommend if you wanted to change habits like lose weight or whatever. He would recommend at a certain time every day creating a little tiny ritual that was just yours that you did he recommended rotating the ring on your finger if you wear a ring right just something every day at three o'clock you do that this was on um for listeners by the way if you want more stuff like this there's a great podcast done by a, a really smart thinker named connor habib and he was talking about this which is where i heard it um what you're saying is interesting because it seems to also be a process of embodying uh, the space that you're in, the time that you're in, becoming more in tune with what it is that you're doing. So there's a, there's a bit more going on with your tool here. Uh, but I do, overall, whether it's the Steinerian... Uh, you know, sort of like taking control of your life and, and being able to set your own routine or this process of, you know, maybe putting the, like, I'm just because I'm looking at it right now, there's a candle on my desk, uh, you know, moving the candle to a different room or, you know, or just lighting one of the wicks or something that, you know, is is different from a kind of zombified space that we're all in. I think that little things can't be underestimated. They can't, you know, and oftentimes I find, you know, I mean, here I am at my age, you know, and I think, well, can I do that? You know, can I move the candle to another room? And of course, you know, think of the famous, you know, TSL, like, do I dare eat a peach? You know, and I think, mm-hmm. well, hell yeah I can move that candle to another room I mean it's my house and who cares and why not and it also links back to uh, 
I think that, I mean, I had this as a, you know, very radical way as a child. I mean, I was an occult magician, you know, from the get-go of magic numbers and strange little hand gestures. I was probably on some sort of spectrum. But we all have little, you know, magic rituals and superstitions and things, and we should embrace those as adults, and maybe we should investigate creating some new ones, you know? that There's the thought, is just like... I'm going to uh, just put on my shoes, you know, I'm going to put on my other shoe first, you know. I'm going to break pattern. I'm going to break with what I'm doing. I'm going to write with my left hand, not my right. You know, all of these things sound very, very basic, and they are. And that's the point, is that, that there's so much that we can do that that is completely free, that doesn't hurt anyone else, doesn't hurt anyone. And... It's just a healthy way of recycling and challenging some assumptive patterns of lethargy of mind that then barnacle us, you know, in, in further and deeper and much more significant uh, assumptive practices that really do debilitate us, you know. Right. Do you have a tip? I do. I do. And this is... Um, this is something that uh, I've been talking about with my, uh, I think I mentioned my psychologist friend who moved to Denver and who uh, I just occasionally touch base with him. He's, I, I like him because he's, he's a good sort of, uh, he's a, a different kind of male friend than you are, Dave. We're not on the same wavelength that you and I are. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. have, it's kind of what's good is the things that we don't have in common, but uh we're sort of discussing this notion of think of yourself at what you feel is your absolute best in a fairly daily sense. Are you busy accomplishing things? That could be a good feeling. Are you quietly contemplating? Are you alone? We all need some alone and downtime, you know. Or are you with others? Are you playing with your kids? Are you making love with your partner? How do you define your best possible self-state? Knowing that that can't continue all the time, but how do you define your best possible self-state? Your moment of real, genuine contentment, fulfillment, centeredness, groundedness, well-being. Because that state will tell you an enormous amount about experiences of distress and anxiety. These are not moments that are opposite to distress and anxiety. They are inversions. Inversion is not the same as a binary opposition. Dave and I talk about that. That's an important distinction. Inversion is a much more powerful idea much more flexible. Uh, opposites become kind of ossified, calcified, mechanical uh, problems that are usually false. That opposition is, is usually not clearly defined. It's not the good equation that it may appear to be. Inversions are organic and alive and capable of change. We can use the, the very oscillation energy 
of inversion, to flip things over. So think about what is your best possible state during any sort of ordinary week. I mean, maybe it's out walking with the dog, you know? It doesn't have to be a big, uh, it, it, the, the simpler and more mundane, God, how we hate the mundane, don't we? What, you know, that's one of those mm-hmm. words that gets really pissed upon from a high level. And what a beautiful idea, the mundane. You know, that it's, we're so, it's so good that we have the mundane. And maybe we should mm-hmm. look into what mundane actually means. Uh, but we're, we're always, you know, afraid of the average, the ordinary, the, the good vibe we might have, you know. Uh, there's this uh, chick who's out, she's 28 years old. She's, I think she's from uh, upstate New York and based in Detroit now. She's a singer. She's got a song that's getting a lot of rotation on the radio station that I listen to. Well, I hear... It, I mean, I love to get in the car and have that song come on at the at the top of it, you know? Like, I come in, and she's right on the top. And I, I roll down my window, and I think, yeah, you know? And it's suddenly summertime forever, you know? Not just back into... It's summertime forever when I hear that song, and I'm in a good groove. So it can be something really, really simple. But f- think about and write down a moment during your week of good groove that you can kind of count on, hopefully, in some sort of regular way. And then use that as a tool in it, via inversion to examine moments of anxiety, distress, dissonance. You know, because Dave and I are about helping people with dissonance because, you know, we suffer that. I mean, he's raising a young son. He's got... Uh, he lives in the midst of tornadoes. It was blowing a gale at 65 miles an hour in my house. I've got no idea about some big questions in life that I should have answers to at my age. You know, we've all got dissonance. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not here to provide answers. But we are here to hopefully share some tools that we're using from what is uh, unashamedly a kind of magical toolkit approach to... Uh, dealing with complete chaos dissonance messaging weird t-shirts you know and and sometimes just outright nonsense that the world gives us right on and are you ready for that? take us take us to dream world. okay dream world this was this was uh, all right uh, I was attending a class in finished carpentry, like high-end carpentry, and that is not my background, not my skill set, and I did have some questions why I was there. But I was fascinated by the people who were there. And it seemed kind of welcoming. And I guess that within the confines of the dream, I, I kind of felt like, well, this is a carryover of the good small town vibe I'm feeling with my move. Mm-hmm. And so I, I rolled with it. And we all had uh, a space 
at these just giant workbenches and we had stools and the stools would spin around and there was one guy who just kept spinning and I realized I, I think he might have some mental health problems and uh, I thought well I'm, I'm okay here <laughs> you know I'm not, at least not spinning around on, on my stool I'm trying to get with my tools you know that were laid out before me and then I started to look at them and there was like if you could imagine like uh, maybe uh, three uh, placemats at a table heavy heavy cloth industrial uh, like muslin and that's the size of, of the offering almost like a big big apron that has been spread out before you and on that apron are laid out these beautiful precision tools and they were just simply exquisite they were magical to look at I, I was fascinated I wanted to draw or try to draw every one of them and as I looked at them I realized I had no idea what any of them were. They were entirely unfamiliar. They weren't adzes or awls or any kind of woodworking tool I'd ever seen. They didn't seem to have any reference to anything. And I wasn't entirely sure that they were made of any kind of metal that I'd ever encountered. Mm -hmm. And then I, the more I looked at them, the more organic they became and they began to shift places of their own accord. And I thought, oh, my, this is going to be a very, very interesting class. And I couldn't stop looking at them. And when I looked around at the other people, the guy who was spinning on the stool was still spinning and completely idiotically just obsessed with the spinning, like a, you know, like an autistic kid, six years old. Mm -hmm. But some of the other people had opened their minds that was the expression the instructor used and then I became conscious of the instructor who bore a rather distinct resemblance <laughs> to the kind of lobsters that Sartre would see when he was on mescaline and I thought oh dear this is getting very odd but the other normal people opened their minds and their whole bodies became like the tools in front of us and I thought oh my god there everything is is completely alive here and any sense that I had that there was a muslin sort of placemat in front of me with some woodworking tools laid out just completely went out the window and I thought I'm going to try to engage with these things in a different way. And lo and behold, my hands disappeared and some other kinds of implements, devices, organic things took shape right in front of me and were kind of answerable to me. And I thought, my God, I'd never known that I had those things inside me and the lobster instructor said and now we will begin to make some things and I woke up and I woke up <laughs>